This is Chapter 71 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Cherenkovich. Coming up, a spy thriller that taps into the mounting tensions between Russia and the West. A debut novel that examines the way modern Chinese society is changing. And we meet an author who tapped into her family's aviation history for her latest book. They say timing is everything, and that's certainly the case for the newest thriller from Daniel Silva. The Other Woman, which features Russia as the enemy, hit shelves the same week President Trump had his summit with Vladimir Putin. We chatted about that and just why Russia makes a great villain. Well, The Other Woman uh, is the newest entry in my long-running series uh, starring Gabriel Alon. Uh, he is a uh, Israeli... Uh, intelligence officer and, and assassin. He now serves as the, the chief of, of, of Israeli intelligence. And uh, in this novel, he is actually trying to uh, identify a Russian mole who is operating at the very peak of Western intelligence. And his search leads him backward in time to perhaps the greatest act of treason in, in history, and that is the case of, of Kim Philby, the notorious British double agent and spy. Your last two books dealt with ISIS. This one, as you mentioned, Russia is the enemy. Right. That just can't be a coincidence, right, or a result no, of good timing. No, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> I mean, look, Gabriel, um, the Gabriel Alon series is is set um, in, in the real world. He, he operates roughly in sync uh, with the real world. So, But it's, I think of it as, as a parallel universe, one or two steps removed. Um, and... It, I've written, this is now the fifth book in which he has tangled with Russian intelligence. Um, but look, in our, in our political climate and, and what, what's going on internationally, it just it almost seems as though I were obliged this year to write about Russia. That being said, you can't be surprised by the stories currently dominating the headlines today. It was awfully kind of the... Of the <laughs> Of the president and, and and Vladimir Putin to schedule this summit meeting to 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 coincide with the the publication of my new novel, um, and to have this truly bizarre press conference that followed, um, it did create a sort of a news environment <laughs> that was that was probably quite helpful to me, um, but uh, no, and, and what I'm really not surprised about is is going back to sort of the the original sin, and that was Russia's meddling in our 2016 election. In, in 2013, I wrote a book about Russia's meddling in, in Western politics. It was called The English Girl, and it was set in, in Great Britain. And it involved a, a, a Russian uh, plot to, to compromise the British prime minister. Uh, it involved sex and money and, and all kinds of interesting stuff. but. Um, I wrote that book at that time because I knew that that sort of, of thing was happening in Europe and that it was only a matter of time before it, it made the leap across the pond and came to America. And, and so here we are. Look, we're very, very divided right now. Um, and it makes it, it, makes it, it tricky to, uh, to write a book about this, uh, to, to publish a book about this, and to talk about it. Because no matter what you say on, on the subject... Um, someone is likely to 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 take offense, um, but I think 
we all need to agree on a, on a sort of a basic set of facts. In fact, one is that Russia, an adversary of the United States, intervened in our election in order to help Donald Trump become president. Um, and, and those are the facts. Uh, they are undeniable. You can also make the argument that another fact is that Putin and Russia make pretty good villains, whether they be real or fictional. They are the best villains. Um, they're, they're good villains, A, because they are villainous, but B, the KGB, and, and this is you know, demonstrable. It's 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 clear from the, the from the sophistication of the attack that was launched on us. They are very good at what they do, um, and they think long term. And so, when I write a, a a novel about an intelligence operation that is, uh, you know, forty years in the making, uh, you don't you don't bat an eye, because that's the way the KGB and, and Russian intelligence operates. And considering you have this uncanny ability to tap into that, do you think there's a Russian mole in either the CIA or MI6? By, if we say mole, meaning that, that someone that is working for Russia and burrows into these intelligence services from the outside and works his or her way up, um, I would say unlikely. I, I would admit that that is unlikely. Um, but we should assume that, that um, look, I, I forget the number in, in the United States, but we have well over a million people with top secret or above clearances in the United States. We should assume that, that Russia is, is actively, actively trying to recruit some of them as assets. Um, and we should also assume that perhaps they've they've managed to turn a couple of them. Uh, that is, I think that's that's um, that would only be prudent. I want to go back to your book, and you mentioned a little bit earlier um, the story of Kim Philby, who, for people who don't know, he was a British spy, worked as a double agent before he defected to Moscow. You've called Philby and his story an obsession of yours. How did that start? Yes. Well, I mean. I first read his his autobiography, My Silent War. I think when I was twenty two, I thought it was the most fascinating. It was. It's only. It's completely unreliable. At the same time, it, it's fascinating. Philby worked as a journalist, so he's a very fine writer, um, and I just was enthralled by the life he led. I found his actions abhorrent, but he did leave such a remarkable life that spanned. Um, you know the the most exciting and important um, historical events of the 20th century. It's just I, I I always wanted to write a book about Philby. I, I had to wait about you know 35 years to do it, <laughs> but I finally got around to it. And um, the result of that is the other woman. He's sort of a he's not a character in the novel by any means, but he. He's definitely a presence in the novel, and and I uh, allow myself to to uh, create sort of speculative fiction that he undertook a very very important operation on behalf of his masters at the KGB that we did not know about. So, will Russia play a part in your next novel? Um, you know what I I learned long ago. Um, uh, n not to discuss something that isn't written. 
Um, I have I have plans uh, to to write something other than Russia um, for the next one. That, that's as far as I'll I'll go. Um, but I am watching with great interest uh, the degree to which um, this book is <laughs> is selling uh, and flying off the bookshelves. And and I'll, I'll just say that that um, I'm thinking about writing a sequel to it. I am not sure yet, uh, but right now, no plans to do that. It really is a heart-stopping read, so I encourage people to go Thank out and so get much. it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, we've been talking with Daniel Silva. The new book is The Other Woman. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. In What We Were Promised, Lucy Tan explores China's past and present through the story of one family. She recently visited our studios and spoke with our Marla Diamond about her debut novel. The book begins with a young couple of modest means, Lena and Wei Zhen, on their way to America. They return 20 years later and settle into a very different China than the one that they left. So let's start there. How much has changed and how do the Zens adapt? It's totally different from the country that they once left. It's got so many skyscrapers. Um, there's just money that's come into the, sp- the city in which they settle, Shanghai. And it's so much more modern. And it's really international. So they are in this hotel that's, f- that's filled with multinational people. And the language spoken is English. But the people servicing this hotel are local Chinese. And so there is this class divide there that didn't exist in the years that they were in China previously. During communist China. And that's the way they grew up, and that's the way everybody grew up. Everybody was equal. So just a few generations ago, you know, their families were on the same playing field as the families of these people who work for them. And through this family drama that you explore those issues of class, privileged, Maoist China and post-Maoist China, arranged marriage and the complications that befall the family when a long-lost brother arrives. You talked a little bit ab- about it, but I'm, I'm curious to know um, what you were trying to portray by having, you know, this this family come back uh, from America uh now newly wealthy. um, And also you include several characters in the book who uh, work for this family and others. They work in this full service hotel. Yes. So what I wanted to portray was a portrait of modern China and of Shanghai specifically as this place that is becoming something really new and full of chaos and hope and um, citizens that don't really know how to relate to that place anymore. So you have these people who are living in Shanghai that are extremely privileged, and then you have the extremely underprivileged. But both or all segments feel a certain level of displacement and alienation in the city. And I thought that that was really interesting during my time there in um, China. That was kind of what I picked up on and wanted to explore in this novel. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You've gone back and forth. Um, yes. You were so born I was here. born here. I was born in Pittsburgh and I grew up in New Jersey. And um, my and I, I had been visiting China on and off since I was seven years old. But um Before I went to college, my parents um, or my dad found a job there, and he was an American expat working in China. And as soon as I went to college, my mom joined him. So since then, I've been traveling back to China 
every year, sometimes twice a year, and I've seen the way that it's developed over time. And after I graduated, I joined them abroad for two years, and I lived in Shanghai. And so I witnessed a lot of the material that I included in this book firsthand. So your parents came to the United States, settled in Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. looking for a better life, education. That was what happened in the 70s and 80s. Right. And now, because America is opening more corporations over in China, and there's more of a I mean, you know, it's a capitalist society within communism. Um, That's why so many are going back now because they have the opportunity to work back in their home country. Right. And um, it's the backgrounds of my characters are very similar to my parents, but it's not based on my family members at all. Okay, because there's a lot of <laughs> My mom of always drama. likes to make sure that I make that clear. <laughs> oh, okay, right, right. We'll do that for your mom because there is a lot of drama. And, there's a lot um, of drama. Mm-hmm. Um, through the Zen's housekeeper, Sunny, you explore those divisions between China's wealthy and the working class in the 21st century. It, it seemed to me that Lena, the... Um, what is she called? Tai Tai. Tai Tai, right. She's the housewife that doesn't do any housework, right? <laughs> um, they had similar upbringings, I'm assuming, Sunny and Lena, um, both in the countryside. Well, but they followed different paths. Yes. Because Sunny simply did not have some of the advantages that yes, Lena had. Yes, that's absolutely true. Right. And also Sunny is, she's from a different area and she's a little bit younger. And, you know, in this, in the short time of China's history in the past 20, 30 decades, so much has happened. So that also makes them come from a little bit different backgrounds. But I was getting at the point that these are two women um, that came from the same place, but they live totally different lives. Right. Um, and there's a part of the book where Sunny is cleaning up the house and she looks at Boston's papers and she thinks, well, if I had just gone to school, if I had just gotten uh, more of an education, I may be, mm-hmm. um, you know, married to Bazen or have a job. Mm-hmm. Or do what he does. Yeah. Right. So it was just this maybe missed opportunity or she didn't go for the education. I think when she's speaking to her mother on the phone, her mother says, why don't you come back to the village and get pregnant? And she's her own woman. She right. doesn't, she's rather feminist. Yes. Yeah. Um. So uh, getting into sort sort of the uh, the arc of the novel, each member of the Zen family struggles with the past and the present with their Chinese and American roots. And Lena, uncomfortable in her new role as Tai Tai Wei, a bit uncomfortable in his role as an ad executive. I think he studied engineering. Mm-hmm. Was that? Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's also a role that kind of I thought took an amusing and uncomfortable turn when he's cast as the boss in this reality <laughs> apprentice like television show. But um, both of them kind of feel like fish out of water. Yes. Um, talk a little a bit, bit about that and uh, sort of the the fiction part of it and what um, happens here in the novel um, with the, with this marriage right. and there is a surprise visitor that comes. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. So Lena and Wei grow up, you know, um, not really having that much. They were the Wei, at least, was the golden child of their hometown. But still, they were all they were both trying to make it to America as um, graduate or he was trying to make it to America as a graduate student. And he's very smart and successful and he does. But when they marry and they go to America, they are immigrants. And this experience actually bonds them because they are, 
you know, aliens in this country that they don't know. And they have to work together to, to make things work, to build a family. And they do fall in love. Um, when they go back to China, though, suddenly their relationship is on rocky ground. And I think a lot of that has to do with the power balance in the relationship. Right. She's followed him abroad and suddenly she has no agency or in her mind, she doesn't have very much agency. She was a teacher. She in was the a United teacher. States. She was a teacher. And so now she has no job. And also her child is being educated in the States. So she's also not a mom in the way that she wants to be a mom because she doesn't see her daughter very often. Right. And so she is a fish out of water in that way. And Wei is somebody who, you know, is so far now, even though he's very financially successful and he's and he has a great family, he's very far from what he thought he would do career wise. And this is a moment of um, of self reckoning for both of them. Mm -hmm. And is she is uncomfortable with the opulence? Or do you think she kind of likes the I think it's a little bit in between. I think yeah. she's self-critical enough to be aware that this is maybe not really what she wants. But at the same time, this is what she has. This right. is what she has access to. And so she leans into it. Yeah. yeah. And she thinks of this new world, of this new society in China, this expat society, as one in which she wants to ground her family in the way that she did when she went to America and she tried to assimilate and become as American as possible. Right. So the conflict in the book comes in the character of uh, Quang? Uh, Chang. Chang. Okay, I'm so, I don't know if I was saying no, it's that hard. right. That is Wei's brother. That's Wei's brother. And he is kind of a good-for-nothing gambler. That's right. Well, that that is one way to describe him. <laughs> so they, the three of them all grow up together. Yeah. And Lena and Chang actually have a friendship and maybe a little, something a little more than a friendship um, in the years leading up to Lena being married to Wei because they had an arranged marriage and going off to America. And in that time, just before they left, Chang actually disappeared without saying goodbye to anyone. And so the book opens when he's now gotten back in touch after being out of touch for 20-some years, and he wants to come back and visit them in Shanghai. And um, they are curious as to why now, and also what does this mean for them? So when he comes back, there are all these family secrets that, are, that, be, that start to unravel, and that's when the drama starts. Right. Um. And it is interesting thinking about the kind of life that Lena has now and the kind of life she would have had with Quang um, would have been much different. Very different. Transient, mm -hmm. not knowing where the next dollar is going to come from. Yep. You know, he earned his living gambling. Right, so. right. It's um, almost the polar opposite to the life that she lives now, which is extremely secure and comfortable. comfortable. Right. Right, right. Um, and you mentioned that um, her daughter, Karen, um, 12 years old, um, began her education in the United States and remained in the United States. And I'm curious if that is the case for a lot of Chinese families that return to China. Do they leave their children behind to be educated here? I don't think so. I think most of them will take them with with them. There are great international schools in Shanghai. Um, and so I think most families take advantage of that. But the, the, the reason w that Wei has for leaving his daughter behind is that he said, you know, we've worked so hard to establish ourselves in America. Mm -hmm. What was that for if we're not going to have our daughter grow up in America? Mm -hmm. And so that's 
one of the central questions um, in Lena and Wei's marriage that they're figuring out throughout the book. Right. Is what what was that for? Okay. They come back to China willingly. Yes, willingly. But he's not crazy about his job. He's not, no. He's working at an ad agency, but he was trained as an engineer. Right. So... Do you did, did did you write him having some sort of desire to remain in America, but you know he was transferred to China and didn't really have the choice, or I think he was Wei, chosen because he obviously speaks the language, yes. is familiar with the culture. I think they def. I think his company chose him and chose to go to Shanghai because they recognized that there was opportunity there um, for their business, and Wei was the perfect person to go. Wei has been, I think, operating on autopilot for the last 20-some years, where he has been wanting the kind of external, externally viewed success. And this is another way to achieve that, because he's, he's been given his, um, a higher position, and he's been given the ability to create a, a branch of his company that he can mold but when he gets there, it's, he realizes that that's actually not really what he's been given. Um, he's still the underling to people at headquarters, and he's still running things not exactly the way that he would want to. Right. And he's constantly working. I mean, it seems yes. that um, m- most, if not all, of the characters in the books it sort of g- get in satisfaction or uh, come to accept their their response their role but he is kind of left out there i think he's you know doesn't really get his you know closure or you know Mm -hmm. as as uh, lena does with his with um way's brother so i we talked a little bit about arranged marriages. Was that common Not in common. Maoist uh, China? No, I no. don't think so. I think this was a very specific thing that happened between two families in the book for a reason. And that reason becomes revealed, but it was not common. Okay. Um, and the conflict... Uh, begins with a stolen bracelet, a mm-hmm. stolen ivory bracelet. Can you talk a little about that? It's the maids that are accused of selling it and what, you know, wh- why you decided to use that bracelet as sort of... Uh, yeah, um, I actually wrote a short... This book started as a short story a while ago um, about two maids being accused of a bracelet. And it was set in Shanghai and it had all of the... I started with that moment of conflict and then a, a novel grew out of it. So that bracelet was really the seed for the story. And I don't think I consciously chose it. I think it just happened. And then only later does the bracelet gather meaning even as I was writing it. Yeah, I, I noticed that in your book, uh, you ask the, the reader to go along with you, not giving all of the d- details. Mm-hmm. to, um, And then the details come out eventually. And they even come out at the very, very end of the book. And I was thinking, you know, why is this important? Why is this significant? But then it, you you learn. Mm-hmm. You go into the backstory. So you go back and forth between the present and the past. Yes. And your book shows that there are two distinct Chinas now, um, one of the Zens and one of Sunny and Rose, the maids, uh, who did not um, 
you know, I guess chose a different path or, you know, decided to take a route that kept them in their same um, station in life. And also uh, the the book uh, kind of really uh, shows the difference between uh, Maoist China and, and goes into the the background of the parents. Um, and so not only is it a story of this family and a love story, it is really about the changes culturally, economically, I mean, everything that has happened um, since uh, China started to adopt more free trade policy. Right. And I think that you can even see that being true in Shanghai, there's a scene where Sunny, one of the housekeepers, um, is traveling from Pudong, which is the new district in Shanghai, where all of the new skyscrapers are, to the outskirts where she lives. And um, she describes the difference between what it's like to be in Lanson Suites, that fictional hotel that I wrote about, um, where the novel takes place, and w- where she lives, where in the stores, you're seeing old CD inserts and Nokia cell phones um, and that are, you know, not the data kind. Right. And um, so even just traveling those few miles, you travel back many, many years. Right. Um, in terms of technology. So I think that that's even more true when you tr- when you travel from the city to the countryside where she's from. And so it does seem like two different worlds entirely. And people like Sunny, Sunny and Rose are from Rose was born in Shanghai, but Sunny is someone who did, did not have um, the opportunities that someone born in a city might. Right. So even they are very different as right. well. Right. And I thought it was interesting that um, obviously uh, Sunny's name is not Sunny, um, and probably something complicated to pronounce for Americans mm-hmm. that are living in Shanghai. And so she. she she goes to look at the name tags and she's like, oh, I like Sunny. And yeah. she picks this one. And so she almost needs to take on a little bit of a different identity. Yeah. And I think it's a complicated issue for her because she thinks of being in Shanghai as this opportunity to adopt a new persona. But at the same time, what is this persona? It's her spending so many hours of her of her weeks um, under the employment of a family that doesn't really treat her as an equal or right. less less human but less human and when i was writing it i was thinking what it, what must it be like to hold on to your own identity when you're in this situation daily where you're servicing somebody else mm-hmm. and so i made it a point for sunny because she is asked what her real chinese name is and she doesn't tell them and to me that's a way for her to hold on to her own self hmm. okay and this is your debut novel. That's and right. And a really great one. Thank too. you. And, um, you know, just for those out there who might be think who might have written a short story and are thinking, how can I make the leap to a novel? How, how do you do it? Is there any one piece of advice you could give aspiring novelists? Well, I will start out by saying it wasn't a very good short story. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it wanted to be a novel. And when I say it wanted to be a novel, I mean that there were doors in that short story that felt as though they, sh- they should be opened. Um, so the short story took place within a hotel room, but I really was interested in the lives of all of these characters. And so I think it started out as a seed anyway. 
Um, but of course, writing a novel is a commitment that's much longer than writing a short story. And for me, it just it's putting in the time and not getting too tripped up on the the project. So my teacher used to say it's about the process, not the project. So if you sit down X number of hours a day and you just make that your job, something will come of it. And you're quite young. You wrote the short story in college, correct? I wrote the short story in grad school. Okay. Yeah. And won an award for it? I won an award for a different short story. Okay. But, But it was somewhat related to my career because that short story put me in touch with agents and so right. there were people ready to help me when I was when I was ready with this novel that I that I wanted to sell. Okay. Are you going to continue the uh the Zhang story in your next novel? Or are you going to something else? I don't think so. I'm moving on. You're moving on. I'm moving on. But are you keeping your roots in China? It's you know, I don't right think about I what have, you know, right? Yeah. But I don't think I have um roots in any one place. Mm-hmm. I, I do I do identify with being an international so um, we'll see what, what happens next. All right. Suzanne Rendell weaves a tale of love and friendship against the backdrop of Northern California farming country in the late 30s and early 40s in Eagle and Crane. She told me how her grandfather inspired some key elements of the story. I'm originally from the region where it's set, and my grandfather grew up in a ranch similar to the way that one of the main characters, Louis Thorne, grew up in that region. Um, and he used to um, pick fruit in that on the neighboring orchards for extra money when he was a teenager. And I think he was the one who first told me that a lot of the other orchards were originally Japanese owned. Um, and so that planted sort of one of the seeds for where the story wound up going. Um, and then the other thing is he was a World War II flight instructor, and that sort of planted the other seed. So basically, the novel is called Eagle and Crane, and Eagle and Crane is both the name of a barnstorming act, as well as the nicknames of the two main characters. Um, Barnstorming acts are essentially flying circuses, which was a sort of popular pastime during the teens and 20s, and then started to peter off around the 1930s when this book is set. And so essentially, this book is about two friends, two guys, Louis Thorne and Harry Yamada, who wind up putting on this barnstorming act together titled Eagle and Crane, who find some success doing this um, until the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entry into World War II sort of interrupts their their momentum. Um, And it's a story about, I guess, friendship and the tests of friendship and loyalty and really a story of how these two young men make it through what's a very difficult political time in our country. In addition to these two young men, there's also a young woman. And you talk about the book being about friendship and, and things that test friendship. And there's a little bit of a love triangle thing going on, isn't there? Yes, there's there's definitely some of that as well. And essentially, the two young men have what I kind of like to describe as a sort of fox and hound friendship, where Lewis and the Thorne family um, have maybe grown up resenting the Yamada family over a land dispute. So... Lewis, while he befriends Harry as a child, is essentially told not not to play with Harry, not to make friends with Harry Yamada. Um, And then they wind up kind of reuniting through this barnstorming act that they end up doing and having sort of a a tentative, uneasy friendship, but a friendship nonetheless, one that's maybe full of a bit of rivalry, um, but is still amicable. And the young lady who helps run the barnstorming act, Ava Brooks, uh, sort of is 
the um, the tie that binds them really. Um, she's the the third friend, but they both obviously have some feelings for her. So when World War II happens and Japanese Americans are interned, and Harry Yamada and his family are interned, Lewis has a lot of reasons to feel perhaps some resentment towards Harry. And it sort of ups the stakes, I guess, to have um, maybe things that you envy about your friends <laughs> during a time when, again, the political climate is uh, turned against them. And as I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think about the conversations and the practices that are happening in this country right now about immigration and what it means to be American. This all must be a little surreal for you, right? It is. Actually, it's really strange because when you write a book, it takes quite a bit of time to to write the book and then to go through the publishing process. And when I started this, um, the political climate was very different. Um, Obama was still in office, and um, I think we all had some assumptions about how the election was going to shape up. And I remember realizing that this was going to involve um, some period in in the plot where the Amadas would be in the internment camps. And I remember thinking that I wasn't sure that this would feel um, immediate enough for a reader being worried that I wouldn't be able to write this in such a way where people would feel the connection of a parallel. Um, I've been, as I was writing it and as I was editing it and as it went into publication, everything sort of shifted in the headlines. And there are some definite parallels, I feel, to what is happening presently. And it, it's just interesting because coming at the book from one point of view, being anxious about whether or not that would seem palpable enough for the reader, and then now really feeling like, there are just some very, very strong parallels there. It's definitely changed for me as I, as I continued forward with this particular book. And tell us a little bit about how um, you learned about the internment camps and people's experiences there. My interest in that began with um, my mother's friend, really. As a child, probably my favorite of my mother's friends was this woman named Barbara Matsui. And I remember as a child, um, she was legally blind. And as as kids often do. I remember asking my mother uh, why <laughs> and to tell me the story of that. And my mother explained that um, Barbara had actually been born in an internment camp and that her mother um, was pregnant during that time. And I think that, you know, in my research, it was clear that these camps were thrown together very hastily and that especially in the inception of them, that conditions were really, really um, closer to third world conditions at first. And uh, Barbara's mother had contracted German measles and there you know, wasn't a lot of um, medical care either available. Um, so between all those conditions, um, it, Barbara being born in the internment camp was the reason that she had been born legally blind. And I think that left a deep impact on me as a child thinking that, first of all, that you could very much see sort of a repercussion playing out in, in my time. And also to like just comprehend that that had happened and it had happened in a place that I felt it couldn't have, you know, in America and California and close to home. <laughs> so, so that I think maybe left enough of an impression on me to where I felt that this was an important part to tell of uh, California's history in telling this particular epic kind of drama. It feels almost like this book is a result of your childhood. There's that your mother's friend and then also this family history of aviation, which you mentioned a little bit about your grandfather, but extends much. It's much larger than that, isn't it? It's interesting because there's so many threads of this um, that did come out 
from family stories or connections. And also just even in the fact that I decided to make this about aviation and barnstormers. Um, it's interesting that I have a lot of pilots in my family. My grandfather, obviously, as I mentioned, was a flight instructor for World War II pilots. My father was an Air Force captain and flew F-111s. And my mother figured if uh, her father could do it and her husband could do it, then maybe she could fly too and take lessons and got her wings. Um, at the same time, um, I have a fear of flying. So <laughs> <laughs> it definitely didn't get handed down to me be flying gene. Um, but yeah, I definitely felt like having been brought to a lot of air shows as a child and, and things like that all sort of connected and came to fruition in this novel, these family stories and my family, you know, friends of the family and then the history of aviation kind of all tied together. It felt like it, it felt like it was very much a part of, of Northern California's history too. There's quite a history of aviation and even in the industries that have come there since like Aerojet and whatnot, it continues to be an enthusiasm around the region. So I'm guessing you didn't get up in an old barnstorming plane to do any research. No, I was (laughs) thinking though that perhaps like uh, to celebrate this book, maybe I should go to one of those. um, They actually still have these great barnstorming sort of like vintage barnstorming shows that you can attend um, and pay to go up for or a scenic tour, and I thought maybe that would be a nice way to sort of um, cap the uh, book's publication. <laughs> so, it's possible. So, <laughs> you never know, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? I know it's uh, California-focused again, right? This time, yeah. It's interesting because my first two books were so New York-focused, and then Eagle and Crane's kind of marked the shift to um, focusing on um, the region I'm originally from. And um, the next one is centers around the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. It has kind of a mystery element to it with a sort of before and after uh, the earthquake um, dynamic. Um, so it's been kind of fun to, to get. I've just recently returned to, to the area in San Francisco at the moment, and it's been fun to be able to, to walk around and and um, see the region again and um ask questions. We get to do the research on foot, I guess. (laughs) Well, we've been talking with Suzanne Rendell. The new book is Eagle and Crane. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And let's put a bookmark there. Next week, the strange but very true story of a Coney Island sideshow showman who saved thousands of American babies. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books or email us at books at intercom.com.